Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. My name is Michael Hidalgo, and I am so grateful you have joined with us today. It is 2018. Here we are. Happy New Year. Uh, we're just into the new year, and I, I hope and pray that your new year is off to a great start. Uh, before we get started, one thing I want to let you know about is I have a mailing list. I actually... <laughs> I forgot about it when I launched the podcast, and then uh, a few episodes in, I was reminded, oh, I I have a mailing list, and it's a way for you to keep up with all the things that are going on, uh, and especially with all the new episodes that come out. And so if you want to join the mailing list, you can go to my uh, website, which is michael-hidalgo.com, and if you go there, click on connect, put in your email address, and whammo, you will be a part of the mailing list. So today, we're going to talk about user error. Now, if you're familiar with that term, you know user error often connects to um, the tech industry. User error is something that is often used when it talks about how we're using computers or phones. And so it's when your phone locks up and you look at it and say, what's wrong with this thing? Or your computer freezes and you say, what is wrong with this thing? Never thinking that maybe it's something we or you or I have done. And so this idea of user error is really something that I think can help us take another step. And I want to spend time reflecting on this today because one thing I have seen in myself and one thing I've seen in others, in fact, something I've seen in nearly every single person I have ever met is the human propensity to find fault outside of ourselves the inclination to quickly deny what we may have done wrong when things break down or fall apart or stop working, and our seeming refusal to admit that we may have actually been a part of the problem, no matter how small the problem is. And so to do this, first, I want to explore uh, our culture that we live in that has an alarming capacity to deny most anything that could somehow show weakness or that would admit pain or that would reveal any kind of real heartache. And so we deny and we ignore and we push down and we distract ourselves. And we do this really to our own detriment and our own peril. And and then I want to uh, explore how this culture manifests itself in our personal lives as individuals and why that can be so damaging. And then conclude talking about next steps, because this is what the podcast is about. It's about your next steps. Some next steps to overcoming and embracing user error, and in doing so, finding liberation and freedom and simply admitting what everybody already knows. We are not perfect, and we make mistakes. So let's jump in and first talk about the world that we are living in. We live in a world where it's no secret that we are inundated with information and images and news 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and on leap year, 366 days a year. And because of our access to the television and computers and our phones, we can be dialed into this news cycle as much as we want. And so we open up our app on our phone or we turn on the television and, and it's another mass shooting. 
or it's another natural disaster. It's another skirmish somewhere on the globe. It's another political scandal. And this comes at us nonstop. But, but here's the thing. Any one of those things, whether it's a mass shooting or whether it's another war or another bombing or another natural disaster, these ought to stop us in our tracks. I mean, think about the Las Vegas shooting. Almost 60 people were killed and over 600 people injured by a man who was able to assemble an arsenal of of weapons, of military-grade weapons, and he opened fire on a bunch of concert goers. And if we hold that, if we let that sink in, if we take any time to really contemplate that, we would be weeping, we would mourn, we would wail. But instead, we watch that on the news and then we change the channel. Or we're reading about it on our phone and a text comes in and we flip over to our text app and we begin texting back the friend who texted us and we never even go back and finish reading the story. What was interesting is after the news of Las Vegas broke, um, there was something about it. I had been in Las Vegas a bunch. My mother-in-law used to live there. And when we'd go, we would often take our kids to the Mandalay Bay Casino because they have a really large aquarium there. And so when the news broke and they were showing the pictures of the casino and where the concert was, I've been there like a thousand times. I could completely and totally picture it. I knew exactly where it was, what was going on. And there was, there was a, something that stirred in me. And I said to a friend of mine, this particular one, meaning this particular mass shooting, has hit me really hard. And as I said those words, I began thinking to myself, so have the other mass shootings, like, they haven't hit me hard? Th- that we live in a world today where there's one particular mass shooting that somehow strikes us, that somehow connects, that it's almost like we can pick and choose which one hits us hard and which one doesn't. Now, of course, they all hit us hard, and they should, but, but there's something about the, the amount of, of shootings that there are in our world that we can't even keep up, because we live in a time today where most mass shootings don't actually make the news. And if they did, I don't expect that it would make much of a difference for us. Somehow we've learned to shut it out or we forget about it or we deny it. At one level, it's impossible for any one individual to hold all of the pain that this world delivers nonstop. But more than that, what we have learned to do is we've learned to distance ourselves from it. And we tune it out in all kinds of unhealthy ways that I don't even have to go into. But what I see in our world today is that we would rather laugh at total and complete nonsense than actually give our attention to things that really deeply, significantly matter. We, we want to be amused. As one of our own prophets has said, here we are now, entertain us. And the word amused, by the way, means literally without thought. And so the word thoughtless and the word amuse in many ways mean the same thing. 
We have become a people who are thoughtless. We want to be amused rather than have to think critically. And when it comes to the pain in our world, we don't want to think about it. We want to be without thought. There's a book called Trauma and Recovery written by a woman named Judith Herman. And the opening line of the book is this. She says, the ordinary response to atrocities is to banish them from consciousness. And I think she's absolutely right. That the ordinary, the typical response is to banish these things from our consciousness so that we don't have to think about it. And of course, this way of doing things isn't just out there in the big bad world. This way of doing things is everywhere. This way of ignoring, of denying, of shifting. It's, it's everywhere. It's even in, in the church. And we shouldn't be surprised about that. Because the church is made up of people, of men and women who swim in the waters of our culture every single moment. And so we don't somehow leave culture behind when we walk into a church building or when we all gather together at somebody's home. We we bring it with us wherever we go because this is the world that we live in, which means that that we as, as the people of God somehow, like we've learned to ignore pain. Which explains, by the way, why there's so many parts of the Bible that we just flatly ignore and don't engage. Because what's interesting about the Bible is there's so many parts of it that actually give voice to pain, that, that scream out against God, that say, God, where are you? That, that struggle, have a real struggle with doubt and with wondering where God is, or if God is even in charge, or if God can control things. We see a great example of this in the book of poems that we call the Psalms in the Hebrew Scriptures. One of these Psalms concludes this way. It says, From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. That's the way the psalm ends. There's no resolve There's no, but I'm going to be okay. It ends with, darkness is my closest friend. Now, this is not the psalm that you see on a wall clock at a Christian bookstore, is it? (laughs) I mean, this is not the psalm that they print out and put on the cover of a day planner that you give some kid who graduated from high school so that they can plan their classes in college. Like, you, we don't, we don't put these psalms anywhere. We keep, we keep these pages closed. As a matter of fact, I'm willing to bet that few, actually, let me rephrase that. I'm willing to bet that no one has ever sung these words on a Sunday morning at a church service that is anything like the church I grew up in. And by the way, if you're listening and you're a songwriter or you're listening and you're a really good friend of a songwriter, please start writing songs with these kind of lyrics because we need them because we live in a world with mass shootings. We live in a world with political scandals. We live in a world with bombings and terrorist attacks. We need, we need songs like this. We need to begin singing them. And it's not just Psalms, by the way, that, that talk about the difficulty in one's life. There's also Psalms that are just violent 
Consider this lyric from this poem in this book of Psalms. This is how it concludes. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. What the heck? This Happy is the one who takes your babies, the ones who are still crawling and cooing with like the baby fat cheeks and smashes them against the rocks. I mean, this is beyond like road rage. This is, this is messed up. This is the kind of violence that, that we don't talk about. But this is the psalmist screaming out of pure anger, of something welling up deep inside, something that cannot be held in. And I wonder, do we do this? Do we actually talk like this in our world today? Because in my experience, the the Psalms that we sing are like Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And then it's happy and it's clappy and, and we celebrate and we raise our hands and we pretend it's all good because we have Jesus. But if we're honest and we look around our world, we have to admit it's not all good. And there is pain. And there are moments that feel like we are without hope. And yet... We continue to deny those things and push them down and only sing songs of joy. And by the way, this this message of denial, this is preached from pulpits. This is advocated by pastors. A friend of mine recently shared an article written by a pastor who's nationally known and respected. Now, this is not like a guy who's out on the fringe that people don't listen to. This is somebody with like, a radio show and a big blog who writes books, has a massive church. And the whole article was a rebuke on people who cry out against God. It was a critique of of people who say, God, where are you? God, why have you forsaken me? And, And the whole article basically said, if you say those words, first of all, know that God's response is, how dare you question me? And then he said, and if you say those words, it actually shows a lack of faith. Never mind, by the way, that Jesus spoke the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why he was hanging on the cross. I mean, he's saying, no, you cannot, you should not say them. It's wrong. And if you say them, God's response is, how dare you question me? And I read that and thought, my goodness, we're, we're actually beginning to advocate denial because there's moments where it feels like, no, God, you have forsaken me. There's moments where it feels like God is nowhere. The wonderful scholar Walter Brueggemann, which by the way, if your last name is Brueggemann, you have to be a scholar. That's just the rules. So he, he writes about how the church we, we just continue to sing songs of joy, songs of orientation, songs that say everything is great in the midst of a world that is continually disorienting, in the midst of a world that's continually experiencing pain and suffering. And he says, 
us doing this is not some kind of defiance in the face of suffering that's rooted in faith. But he says this, he says, this is a frightened, numb denial and deception that does not want to acknowledge or experience the disorientation of life. So I'm going to say that again. And as I prepare to read that part again, grab a piece of paper, or if you're listening on your phone, open up your notes app and write this down. Just hit like the back thing, like the rewind to 15 seconds a few times and write this down. He says, our singing these songs, our clapping our hands, our denying, our not crying out. He says, it's a frightened, numb denial and deception that does not want to acknowledge or experience the disorientation of life. Those are unbelievably powerful words, and I think they're so powerful because they're so accurate. And and the reason that we have this like relentless affirmation of joy isn't necessarily because of faith. It's because we don't want to acknowledge pain. It's this wishful optimism, like the house is burning down and we're standing there saying everything's going to be fine. And I don't know about you, but this is the world that I grew up in. The first and last word, no matter what was happening in your life, was, hey, listen, trust God, period, full stop, end of conversation. It didn't matter how you felt. It didn't matter how bad things were. It didn't matter how long or how dark the night was. Don't talk about it. Shh, trust God. That's it. End of story. And I always wondered, like, well, what do I do with all of these feelings that are deep inside of me of pain and of doubt and of confusion and of just like the WTF-ness that comes with suffering? What am I supposed to do with these things? And I've experienced the toxic side of this in my own life and in other people. The people who've gone through a lot of pain, the people who've gone through a lot of suffering, who push all of these things down inside and never give voice to this pain, these are the kind of people that end up with very big edges to them. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. There was a, there, there's a woman that I knew years ago who had gone through so much in her life, so much struggle, so much suffering, and, and there was something about her that just had this huge edge to her. And, and yet what she, she would tell people is, you know what? I just practice tough love. And what tough love looked like to her was getting in people's faces and confronting them all the time, like telling people, oh, shut up. Like you need to get over it. You need to get past this. And here's what's interesting. I have never seen somebody get in the face of others who are in a place of pain and have that person who's in a place of pain like move forward and heal. Because when you're suffering, the last thing you want is someone to be in your face with their finger in your face, like wagging it around, telling you, just come on, get over it. And this was like one of her favorite phrases, get over it. This is what I would hear over and over from her when she would share stories about people that she was talking to. One time she told me a story and she said, you know what, people these days, I mean, I've been through way more than they have. They just need to toughen up. 
And I thought, well, well, hang on a second. Hang on a second. I said to her, um, pain is never meant to be compared. Pain, pain is never meant to be compared. I mean, let's just imagine you've broken your arm and your arm, like you have a bone sticking out of your skin and you get rushed to the emergency room and they're treating you. And in the middle of you dealing with this like nasty break and them probably telling you, oh, you have to go to surgery, somebody gets wheeled in who's broken their femur and they begin paying attention to them. It's not... It's not like at that point we go, okay, well, I guess my break's not that bad. Because if you ignore the broken arm and the bone sticking out of your skin, you're probably at some point going to die from some sort of infection or your bone's going to heal incorrectly or something bad's going to happen. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, the femur break is worse and will take more time to heal, but it does not mean that the pain and the break that you are experiencing should be diminished whatsoever. And yet this is what we often do. Well, at least it's not as bad as so-and-so, or I've been through way more. When we compare pain, it's a way of actually beginning to ignore our own or telling other people to ignore their own. And what I'm learning is that people who do this are actually the ones who need to stop and acknowledge their own pain. People who say, oh, just get over it, they should take their own advice, I mean, they need to get over it by going back to their pain, by acknowledging their pain, by sitting in it, by looking at it and asking what that pain can do to continue the process of transformation that all of us are in. Because people who practice tough love, people who've been through a lot that have these huge edges to them, what I'm learning is they actually deny their pain just as much as the rest of us. And if we don't allow our pain to transform us, what will happen is we will begin to transmit that pain to other people. And, and yet we don't want to do this because as a culture, we've learned how to block out pain and we do this as individuals too. We've made a mistake believing that somehow acknowledging pain is weak. Like you just play through the injury I can't tell you the number of times um, over the years and nearly 20 years as a pastor, I've done a lot of funerals. And there's almost this heroic thing about people who in the midst of the funeral can hold it together. This is the phrase that I hear. They're holding together quite well. Why, why would you hold it together at a funeral? Like if you're burying your partner or if you're burying a child, like burying a brother, if you're burying anybody, what, what is it about holding it together, this, this idea of being stoic? I was at a funeral not long ago of someone who died rather unexpectedly, and this woman's sister, uh, just before the funeral, was standing kind of by herself, and so I walked over to her, and I've known her for a while, and I put my arm around her and said, I, I just want you to know I love you, and I'm with you. And she kind of resisted me in that moment. And she said, you better stop it or you're going to make me cry. (laughs) And I said to her, you should cry. You're at your sister's funeral. Like, what is it about this idea of like, don't make me cry. They're holding it together really well, being stoic in the midst of pain. 
It's almost like we believe that people who cry easily, well, they're a pushover. You know, oh, well, there they are crying again. And I wonder, are these things, is, is this just coming from our unease with pain, our unease with suffering, that we can't stand it? We've learned how to deny it. We've learned how to push it away. But when it happens to us individually, see, here's the deal. We can't turn the television off. We can't close the app because it's here and it's with us. It's inside of us. And so we attack it whenever we see it. We bury it inside of us. And one thing I've learned as somebody who buries things is burying stuff is never good. All it does is it allows the roots of whatever is inside of us to grow deeper. And so for anybody with the ability to feel, which is pretty much all of us, the question is, what do I do with all of these feelings inside? When I'm standing by the graveside, when they've left, when the addiction is, is taking over, what do I do with these feelings inside? Because we hear and we, we were taught that God is faithful. We're taught God loves us and cares for us, but our life is falling apart and we have done everything that God asks us to do and we are still suffering. Something is not adding up. And the message in the midst of all of these things that seem like so contrary is just trust. Just trust. Don't doubt. And so we stuff it. And what is subtly caught and taught is that denying pain that is present in our chest, that to, to, to ignore the ache that reaches down into our guts. And we do this in our culture, and we do this in our faith, and we do this as churches and it's really no surprise because as human beings, I mean, we've done this since the dawn of human consciousness. There's a wonderful story that's told in the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, it's, you, you have the man and the woman. And at the end of Genesis chapter 2, uh, it, it says that the man and the woman were naked and had no shame. They, they were living this open and a transparent life and existence. They were able to be fully themselves with one another. This is what the story is, is telling us. And in the midst of this paradise, God gives them one instruction. He says, hey, uh, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like there's all these other trees. There's this one tree. Please don't, don't eat from that one. And if you know the story in Genesis chapter three, uh, the man and the woman are in the garden. The serpent comes in, which represents this, this temptation, this evil, this kind of sly individual and says to the woman, hey, uh, you should really try some of that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after a short conversation, she tastes some and she gives some to her husband who is with her, and he eats it. And it says, and, it, and their eyes were opened, and they saw that they were naked. And so at that point, it's like, oh my goodness, uh, the, the whole naked without shame thing is gone. We have shame. So they take leaves, they cover up, and as they're covering up, they hear the sound of God walking in the garden. And so they run and they hide in the bushes, which is such a great picture. Because I just think about naked people, like running into a hedgerow, you know, at that, 
it just, there's a lot of things sticking, right? And, and there's a lot of discomfort and, and they're trying to cover up with leaves. It's just this unbelievably hilarious attempt to hide that's not going to work. And so God calls out to the man, hey, where are you? And his response is, I was afraid so I was naked because I was naked, so I hid. And God says, oh, who told you you were naked? And, and here's, here's the denial. The man says, oh, the woman, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit, uh, and, and so I ate it. Notice, again, user error. It's not me. It, it's, it's her. And so God says to the woman, um, what have you done? And the woman says, oh, the, the serpent, he tempted me, and I ate some of the fruit. Uh, you, you can see it right from the dawn of human consciousness that, that maybe this is the original sin, is just denial, this inability to own our own stuff. I mean, this is the human condition. And like we said at the beginning, your computer freezes and you go, this stupid thing. And, and, and by the way, it happens around really important conversations too. I don't know when the last time uh, was that you had a conversation about racism, but what's interesting is all of the responses that I've heard, particularly from white people, in conversations about racism. I've heard things like, oh, whatever, the whole racist thing. It's just a project of the liberal media. Or, or my favorite response, uh, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. <laughs> like, uh, okay. Or, you know, racism cuts both ways, right? As though somehow being able to say, you know, people of color have practiced racism, that somehow exonerates or excuses my racist tendencies. Or, the, of course, the popular retort to Black Lives Matter, well, you know, all lives matter. Like, wait, wait, wait a second. We, why is it that we can't actually just hold the reality of systemic racism in our culture and recognize that we are a part of this, but we don't? We push it away. The woman you put here with me, the serpent, right? This is the human condition. Or what about my favorite, when you're driving on the highway and somebody completely and totally cuts you off, like they move into your lane and you slam on your brakes and your forehead hits your steering wheel and you honk the horn at them. And what do they do? They flip you off. And you're like, how is how is this my fault, right? I mean, there's this primal human rejection of the truth. And just let me pause right now and just, just acknowledge, I'm confident there's a few listening right now who are thinking to themselves, oh man, I know somebody who does this all the time. That is actually probably a really good indicator that you're just as guilty as the rest of us because we all do it. We all excuse ourselves. We all reject the truth of who we are. We deny and we blame and we accuse. And when we do this, when we accuse and blame others, it affords us the opportunity to not have to look at ourselves. You see, if we can put the focus on someone else or something else, then we don't have to look at ourselves. And here's, where, here's this connection point between a culture of denial and our inability to look at ourselves honestly. If we look honestly at ourselves and we behold what lurks beneath the veneer of our ego and our false self, my 
goodness, that is painful, isn't it? It's embarrassing. It's difficult. You see, in my experience, we'd rather do anything than have to dive deep and recognize what's inside. We'd almost go anywhere rather than hold what we have done wrong and acknowledge how we have contributed to the problem. I mean, think about this. When was the last time you were in a fight? I mean, when was the last time you were in an argument with somebody? Is it not true that even in your remembering that argument, so many of us, we're so much more attuned to what is wrong with the other person and what they're saying and what they've done. We're so much more attuned to what they've done wrong than anything that we've done wrong. I mean, I can tell you that I, when I'm in an argument, I can, like, on the fly... I could begin to file and make an outline of everything wrong with the other person and what the other person is saying. And at the same time, almost pride myself on the fact that I'm definitely going to win this argument. It's unbelievable how deep this runs with so many of us. So let's talk about then next steps. Let's talk about why is it that so often we deny what's inside and, and, and I, I find it curious that this is so true for so many of us, especially for those from the Christian tradition, because central to the Christian tradition is that you have to admit you're a sinner. Like, th- this is like kind of the core of, of the belief system that I grew up with, is admitting you're a sinner. Th- this is actually what you had to do in a sense, like get into the club or to join the clan, however you want to say it. But what I always see is like, once we're in, quote unquote, we then stop admitting stuff. Like we, we, don't, we stop somehow being honest. But, but if what we're saying about who we believe God to be as a God of mercy and love and grace and compassion, then we have to keep admitting it like every single day. We have to keep talking about it. We have to keep owning it. And, and in my experience, the people who are the most free are not people who are the most perfect. As a matter of fact, people who pretend to be perfect are often some of the most miserable people to be around. You see, the people that I know who are the most free are the ones who are the most honest about being imperfect. They don't use their imperfections as an excuse, but they hold their imperfections as a way of welcoming others. I mean, who wants to sit with somebody who acts like they have everything together and share honestly about their pain and their faults and their wounds. Like nobody wants to go meet with someone who appears to be perfect. No one wants to talk to someone like that. No, we, we want someone who's been there. We want someone who has suffered. We want someone who screwed up. We want someone who has learned how to hold doubt, who doesn't have all the answers. We want someone who actually trusts God enough to be honest about what's stirring inside because that is a display of faith. Faith is not holding it in. Faith is not scolding people for saying, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Faith is not putting words in God's mouth that God will say, how dare you when you question God. Faith is not demanding and placing demands on others that we trust God no matter what and don't say anything else. Faith 
is actually screaming out, God, this is BS. And here is why I say that. Beyond the fact that this is what we see the writers and the Psalms doing, let's just think about our closest human relationships. My, my hope is, is that you have people in your life who you are or you think you could be totally and completely honest with. I'm talking about the people that you can sit with and you can verbally vomit your dirtiest and darkest secrets out and they hold you in their gaze with love and compassion and grace. Why? Why do you do that with those kind of people? Well, because you trust them. You trust them to hold whatever you're going to give them. You trust them enough to know that when they hear these things, they will hug you, they will challenge you, they will call you out as needed, and they will walk the distance with you, and they will love you no matter what. We might say, we have faith in them. And it works the other way too, doesn't it? Like if we don't trust somebody, we kind of put on a veneer, we kind of hide behind this. Uh, I actually, just several months ago, there was a couple that I met with, and the husband began telling me, about all of these things that he had held in for decades. And these were dark, painful wounds. And he talked about abuse that he experienced from the time that he was four until he was about 13 or 14 years old and how he buried all of this and didn't want to talk about it and how he, he began living and acting out of this abuse in these wounds. And his wife was sitting next to him and she just had tears coming down her cheeks the whole time. Just this heart of compassion for him. But there was also something else that was stirring in her. It was this, it was this wound. And so I finally said to her, I said, um, I'd love to know how you're experiencing all this. And she said, we've been married for years, and he's just telling me this now. And she said, my heart is breaking for him. And then there's another piece of me that's going, I feel like he doesn't trust me enough to tell me all this stuff. I feel like he doesn't trust me. Exactly. Because holding it in happens in part because we don't believe that people are going to respond in love. We don't trust other people. And, and so if you love somebody and they keep some sort of secret from you, if you love somebody and they will never tell you about their faults, you begin to wonder, do you trust me? Do, do, you, do you have faith in me, we might say? You see, when I read the Psalms of Lament, which by the way, give us permission to scream out, God, this is BS, because this is what we see them doing all the time. Like when we read these Psalms, that's an act of faith. And I say this because how much trust do you have to possess to stand in front of God and shake your fist at him and scream out, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Are you deaf? Darkness is my only friend. That takes faith. I mean, think about children and parents. Think, think about kids. Like I've never seen a, a four-year-old child who's composed in their emotions. I've never seen a three-year-old who, when their parent says, no, you cannot have that candy, who says, well, you know what? Thank you for giving me a direct answer. I appreciate that. 
and I'm going to trust you and your judgment, both on how much sugar I should be intaking and how much money you're spending on candy. No, not at all. Kids are not composed. This is why we see kids rage and scream and cry and sometimes like just the full out temper tantrum, the throwing themselves on the floor and just moaning and and they're not composed in front of their parents. There's a wonderful story in a book called More Ready Than You Realize told by Brian McLaren that expresses this incredibly well. He talks about how children expect their parents to protect them, how children expect their parents to, to, to care for them. And he tells a story about his friend's son, and his friend's son's name was Josh, and how Josh uh, was diagnosed with cancer, and he had to have a very invasive surgery in his, uh, in his body. And so his, his friend walked his son right to the doors of the operating room, and his son goes in for this incredibly invasive, painful surgery, and his friend is there when they wheel his son out of the operating room. And so he talks about how he's sitting in the recovery room and his friend is sitting on his son's bed, stroking his hair, waiting for him to wake up and come out of the anesthesia. And he said, when Josh comes out of the anesthesia, he sees his dad and he's in this incredible pain. And he begins to say to his dad, why did you let them do this to me? And he said that Josh began to punch his dad in the chest screaming, why did you let them do this to me? And he said that his friend's response was to draw closer to his son. I love you. I love you. And he has this great line where he says, our cries out to God are like Josh's little fists. I mean, Jesus said, hey, You should become like children. Don't be composed. Don't hold it in. And if you need to punch God in the chest because it hurts, God's going to draw closer to you. It's just us sharing with God how we see and experience the world. It's us in our confusion. It's us in our mess and in our pain, just crying out and saying, this hurts. God, make it stop. Where are you? Why aren't you listening? See, it's possible saying, no, 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 just trust God. Or or saying, how dare you question whether or not God is there. It's possible that that is actually a reflection of a lack of faith, of an immature faith, of a short-sighted faith. And so maybe for our next step, maybe it's just beginning to read the Psalms of Lament. All you need to do, by the way, is just Google Psalms of Lament. And some contend that up to 50% of the Psalms, of the poems in the, in the book of Psalms, are Psalms of Lament. Google Psalms of Lament. You're going to get like upwards of 65 different Psalms. Maybe it just begins by reading those. Maybe that's, that's what we need to do, is spend time reading them slowly and allowing that ache contained in those things to become our ache. Years ago, uh, I had a friend who led, oh, like 50 people through writing their own psalm of lament. And maybe, maybe this is an, as another step for you. M- maybe, maybe it's just writing a psalm of lament. Like, God, God, why didn't you heal him? 
God, where were you when she left me? God, why will you not give me the power to beat this addiction? Why do you stand far off when I keep getting passed over for a promotion? I'm actually using the gifts that you've given me in the place that you've called me, and it's not getting better. Where are you? Maybe it's even the explicit prayer. I have a friend who talks about this, the explicit prayer when when you're so angry and you're so filled with rage that all you can do is scream and curse. And, And here's the deal. God can handle anything that you lay down. That, that your cries, even, even those that contain the most rage and anger and pain and sorrow and suffering, they are like Josh's little fists. And God, when we do these things, is a God who draws close. And, and I can tell you that there's so much freedom in just letting these things out. There's so much freedom in even just acknowledging what we've done wrong, not just our suffering, which yes, we need to do, but also actually beginning to just own our stuff, to beginning to talk about what we've done wrong. And I'll tell you this, it is the worst moment in the world right before you do it. I can't tell you how much time I spend thinking about apologizing before I apologize. I hate it. I, I hate saying I'm wrong. I hate having to admit it. But I can also tell you it's one of the best feelings right after you talk about what you've done wrong. Even though there may be consequences, even though admitting you've done wrong will hurt people, there is something that is so freeing. I had recently had a conversation with somebody who shared something with me they had literally never told anyone. And they shared this with me in my office through tears. And as they kind of went through what was going on, the tears subsided. And eventually it came to, I feel so liberated. Exactly. Right. And and what I've learned, like we have this terror about admitting it. And what I've learned is this. Most people already know that I am imperfect. Like, if you know me, <laughs> you know I'm imperfect. You even know what my imperfections are. And so, as much terror as I have sometimes in telling people I've done something wrong, it often comes as no surprise to them, right? And, and I'm betting it would probably be the same with you. So, again, let's, let's think about another step that we can take. Maybe... Maybe go back to a recent situations, a recent situation in your life. So maybe it was driving, maybe it was a computer thing, maybe it was an argument. It doesn't have to be a big thing. Maybe something that happened at work. And just observe yourself. How did you act in that situation? Walk through how, how, how were you thinking about things? How were you feeling? What was going on? What, what did you say? What didn't you say? And, and become aware of how you lived through that moment and how you lived through that experience and be really honest about it. I, I have a friend who actually invites other people into this kind of experience. He'll often say, um, hey, how are you experiencing me 
in recent weeks or in recent months. And don't like, don't lie to me. Be really honest with me. How are you experiencing me? I mean, that's courage. That's someone who's saying, I want to know what's stirring inside of me. And here's why this is so important. If we presume the problem is always out there, or the problem is always with those people, or the problem is always with that person, we will actually never move past the problem because we will never see ourselves as a part of the problem. So maybe there's a relationship in your life and it just always feels like conflict and you've never actually taken the time to say, okay, where can I grow in this? How am I contributing to this? Now, I wanna be honest and just hit the pause button There are some relationships that are completely toxic and abusive, and you've done the work. I'm not talking about those relationships. If you're in an abusive relationship, you need to leave. I'm talking about relationships, maybe it's with a coworker, relationships where it might be with somebody that you um, just struggle to get along with. And and as long as we always think, well, it's their problem, we'll actually never move past it. I mean, all we have to do is look at the political climate in in our world right now, and we recognize this is what we see happening. It's always the other person's fault. But more importantly, if we can begin to acknowledge the the patterns and the ways in which we contribute to problems... um, we will actually become a part of the healing that our world so desperately needs. Because if we're unwilling to look at ourselves, what we communicate to others, whether or not we're aware of it, is that we are not the kind of person who is able or willing or wanting to walk with them. If we don't admit what's going on inside of us, we will actually not have the ability to enter the suffering of others. We will never be a part of true and lasting solutions to problems that plague our families and our neighborhoods and our cities. Because the most healing words and the most transformative actions come out of those people who are experiencing that healing and that transformation within themselves. And those are the people who learn how to be honest with themselves, how to move toward their pain, how to move toward their failure. And when we learn to see ourselves as we really are, and we in that moment learn that we are still loved and still embraced and there is nothing to fear, we can then address the larger problems in our world honestly, because now we will have eyes to see how we contribute to them. And in addressing that, we can all move forward together. Kathleen O'Connor puts it this way. She says, Until those of us who care for the well-being of the earth and its peoples come to terms with our own pain, we are unlikely to be able to receive the suffering of others on their terms. Until we recognize our own hidden despair, we will not be able to receive the tears of the world. You see, the world needs more honest people. The world needs more humble people who are willing to admit their faults and be honest about their doubt and their hurt and their pain. The world needs people like you. The world needs people like you who, just like everybody else, has pain and doubts and suffering, who's been gypped, who's been let down, who's been betrayed, who's caused pain to others, who's done things wrong. Someone just like you who's honest about all of that. Remember, 
Jesus threw himself headlong into suffering. Jesus was rejected. Jesus held sorrow. Jesus was friends with grief. He didn't transcend it. He threw himself into it. And maybe this is our next step is just finding one thing in our life that we've kept hidden and just acknowledging it, writing a psalm of lament, observing the way that we were in an argument, beginning to to take those little tiny pieces of pain and hold them for just a moment. And when we do that, we not only become more whole, but we begin to contribute toward the wholeness and the healing our world so desperately needs. The The world needs people like you. So the next time that you want to throw your computer through the wall, (laughs) or the next time your partner is just not listening to anything you say, or the next time that person at work just doesn't get it, take a deep breath and observe yourself. Be honest with who you are so that you can discover the freedom and liberation found in honest self-reflection. And the next time you feel abandoned, the next time you feel wounded or hurt, scream it out. Rage. I mean, ball your fists in anger. If the Psalms teach us anything, it's this. It says that standing before God and holding out our unfiltered, unscripted, unadulterated rage, that's actually the safest place in the world to do that. And remember, the psalmists never circle back and say, oh, hey, God, sorry about that outburst. And God never comes to them and says, how dare you question me? God's response is always one of compassion. And they leave that doubt out there for their world to see as an example of what we ought to do. So scream it out and know that those screams of pain and disappointment are a deep act of faith because in the moment we do that, what we're saying is, God, I trust you. So may you May you be quick to accept what you may have done wrong in the moments when things break down, fall apart, or stop working. And may you be open to admitting how we may have been a part of the problem, however big or small. May you, in the midst of your suffering and your pain and your disappointment, rage before God in a display of faith that is deep and strong so that together, we may take a next step and draw closer to the suffering that rests heavy upon our weary world. And so thank you again for joining with us today. Happy New Year. And as always, much love and peace be with you.